Welcome to Difference Makers, where we bring you profound and enlightening conversations with remarkable people who make a difference through innovative and inspiring charity work. On this podcast, you'll hear the incredible stories of real-life Difference Makers, learn about the worthy causes and charities they support, and discover how charity work changes lives for the better. We can't address something as complicated as generational poverty by just throwing money and resources at it. It needs to be done in relationship. That's why Hope strives to alleviate poverty holistically. I'm Aldisaris, and in this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Matt Baer, Executive Director for Homes for Hope, who's making a difference by partnering with the building industry to alleviate global poverty through Christ-centered micro-enterprise development programs. Well, good morning, Matt, and welcome to Difference Makers. So glad you could be here with us today. Really excited to get into the good and the great, actually, nonprofit work you're doing, and for our listeners to hear more about and learn about Homes for Hope. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me, Albert. I count it a great privilege to be on this podcast and spend this time with you. Yeah, so Homes for Hope was founded by a builder. So during the time of devastating poverty that came in the wake of the fall of the Soviet Union, Jeff Rutt, who is the CEO of Keystone Custom Homes and still is, he and his church were sending containers of aid to a church that they had developed a relationship with in Zaporozhye, Ukraine. Zaporozhye has been in the news a lot recently. That's the where the nuclear power plant is that Russia has been targeting. Hmm. So uh, the pastor of the church who was receiving the aid actually came to Jeff boldly and said to him, your helping is actually hurting us. The local businesses here can't compete with free. Is there a way that you can help us help ourselves? So he was way ahead of his time in that way of thinking. So Jeff is a businessman. He noticed that there were fields of sunflowers surrounding the community. It's just, it's a beautiful country, Ukraine. So as a businessman, he came back home, wrote up a business plan, purchased a sunflower processing machine so they could make sunflower oil to sell. And he went back to visit the next year, and the machine was just sitting in the same corner where he had left it gathering dust. And he realized he had moved from exporting goods to exporting his ideas, and that wasn't working either. So it was around that time that he learned about the concept of microfinance, where small amounts of capital are invested into people's businesses as loans. And as they build their businesses, they pay the loans back, and the money gets sent back out as more loans. So with this idea in mind, he wanted to generate some capital. So he did what he knew how to do. He built a home and he partnered with his trade partners and suppliers to get donated or discounted services on the build, which increased the profit margin on the sale of the home. And then once the home was sold, he took the profit and sent 12 loans of around $500 each to invest in small Ukrainian businesses that were active in the church's surrounding communities. And a couple months went by and he received a call from the person managing the repayments who said, Jeff, I have good news. And I have bad news. The good news is it's working. People are paying back their loans. They're growing their businesses. They're escaping the bonds of poverty together. The bad news is someone got on local radio and told everyone about it. So we're going to need a lot more capital. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, Homes for Hope was born in 1997. And since then, we and our parent organization, Hope International, have grown from serving one community in Ukraine to serving millions of people in over 20 countries around the world. That's amazing. And I love love the concept. And I think most very successful nonprofits recognize the value of helping the people help themselves. You know, obviously the sunflower uh, processing, it sounded like a wonderful idea, but that's not what the people were looking for. It's not what they needed. 
Yeah, I think one thing that we've learned is we can't just helicopter in and give people our own solutions, right? They already know what their communities want and need. They're talented entrepreneurs, but they're just lacking the opportunity, lacking the access that they need to capital. And you see, we can't just we can't address something as complicated as generational poverty by just throwing money and resources at it. It needs to be done in relationship. Mm-hmm. That's why Hope strives to alleviate poverty holistically. We seek to address poverty in all of its forms, spiritual, social, personal, and material poverty. And uh, this mainly happens through relationships. What, what happens is the way we approach our work is those who are living in poverty around the world, they'll join solidarity groups. And in these groups, people build trust. They cross-guarantee each other's loans. And they receive biblically-based business training together. They're mentored and they get access to saving services and loans, which they wouldn't have had access to before. Usually what they have access to is loan sharks who can charge, who will charge up to, you know, 100% interest per day, which just perpetuates the problem, right? It doesn't help them get out, but that's all they know. So um, the way we approach this, all of this has led to a 97% loan repayment rate over the last five years. Wow. (laughs) Because they're cross-guaranteeing the loans. 97% of them are getting paid back. And when they're repaid, they get sent back out as more loans, exponentially growing in impact over time. So... What's unique about this and what really drew me to hope is that those first 12 loans that Jeff sent over 25 years ago to Ukraine are still cycling through today, um, serving people and growing an impact. It's really amazing when you when you kind of think about it. So in 97, you start with 12 loans of, would you say, $500 each? Yeah. And now you're in, I think you said, over 20 countries? We are, yep. So this thing is not just growing it's growing exponentially the model works yeah i think the best way to to illustrate this is over the course of our history we've raised around 260 million dollars or so um as an organization so that includes hope international uh we've raised around 260 million dollars but we've been able to invest over 1.6 billion dollars in loans a microcosm of that. Let's just take last year, for instance. Mm-hmm. We raised about $36 million as an organization um, last year. And just on the microfinance side, we have three programs. Just on the microfinance side, we were able to disperse over our 100 and 100. It's either 101 or 120. I don't have the number in front of me right now. A million dollars in loans. So just in that's one year. So $36 million in donations turns into over $100 million in loans. Okay, so <laughs> it's it's kind of hard to put your brain around this. Yeah. You're talking, you know, three to four, sometimes like it might be four to one yeah. ratio, whereas most nonprofits, they're usually dollar for dollar, bringing a dollar in and using a dollar, maybe not even the whole dollar because you have overhead to provide the services of their nonprofit to the people. Whereas this model, you're bringing in a certain amount of money, as you said, uh, $260 million right? From from the start. Yep. And 1.6 has gone back out. 1.6 billion. Yeah. It's staggering. It's really staggering, these numbers. And I am kind of curious, did did Jeff, I mean, where, where did this come from? And the other important piece here is when you're talking about relationships, how did Jeff initially, and how do you all continue to get your trade partners and suppliers to buy in? Yeah, those are great questions. Uh, so Muhammad Yunus was the first person to come up with this this concept of microfinance, and he won the Nobel Peace Prize for it. Wow. Okay. And so that's where Jeff learned of it. Your second question was how do we how do we get people to buy into this? 
Yeah, the trade partners and suppliers. Yeah, I think it's because they can see themselves in the people that we serve, you know. So one of the things that I love about the building industry in particular, I've been in nonprofit work my pretty much my entire career since 2004. And um, the building industry, in my opinion, or just in my experience, maybe it's both opinion and experience, um, is the most generous industry that I've come across. And the reason why they resonate with Homes for Hope's work is because they all have worked hard to get to where they are today. And they've also had somebody invest in them to help them get started. You know, nobody is an island. No man is an island, especially an entrepreneur, right? (laughs) You need people along the way to invest in you and help you get off the ground. And so when they hear stories about people who are living in poverty, but are talented entrepreneurs who have great ideas and are just lacking the opportunity that they need or the investment that they need, you know, they see themselves, they think back on their own lives and they remember what it was like for them when they were getting started. This goes all the way from the trade partners up to the owners of the building companies who, st- who started these building companies from scratch. They resonate with, they see themselves in the stories of the people that we're serving and they respect them, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> because they're not just asking for handouts, right? They want to work hard and build their businesses and serve their families and bless their communities and provide jobs for other people. And they've done the same thing. So I think that's why it resonates. It's not hard to get people to participate in Homes for Hope. We just have to let them know about it. I love the model. It's it's impressive. So these suppliers and trade partners, contractors, et cetera, they see it as an opportunity to pay it forward. And they also, you know, we talk about this often at Difference Makers, the feeling, the reward you get from helping others. And by them supplying products for a discount or providing a service in the construction arena at a discount or gratis, they are, they're benefiting from helping others and seeing their good work bring positive change out in the world. And they're rewarded spiritually or emotionally or however you want to describe it. It is a reward. So I really love that, the the concept of paying it forward and then reaping that benefit with a sense of personal satisfaction and pride. Yeah. And it's true. It's true on that side. And then it's also true, Al, on the on the people that we serve side. So one of the things that we'd love to say is that we're unlocking the generous spirits of people who are living in poverty around the world. You know, that once they are able to escape the bonds of poverty, they become they become generous. They already are generous. They they're thinking that one of the reasons why they're motivated to escape poverty is to care for their families and to care for their communities and it's it's usually not a selfish endeavor, you know? Um, but I think it's best summed up in this quote from a woman from Rwanda that we served a number of years ago. Her name was Immacule. And she said, these hands that used to beg, now they give. Wow. And we see that, examples of that, all throughout our work of people who use the profits from their business to be generous to others, to their churches, to their families, to their communities, that, you know, adopting orphans. <laughs> it's It's amazing to see. And I think that there's, again, that's another connection point to the people in the domestic building industry. As they hear stories of that, they see it as something that's worthwhile to invest in. And then another piece, too, is that they're businessmen and women, and they care about return on investment. And in the nonprofit space, like you were saying before, this this model is pretty rare. You know, we, we don't talk about that enough, the return on investment. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something we really need to share more. And obviously, microfinancing and this model which you guys um, have kind of, sounds like you've implemented and perfected, really speaks to the investment that 
the collaborators and partners make and they can see the return on their investment. And I think it's just something we need to be really putting front and center more in the nonprofit world, letting our donors and supporters know that there is a return on investment and then sharing the successes with our donors and our supporters. Because a lot of times people make a donation to charity and they don't know where the money goes and they just hope for the best. But we really need to, just as nonprofit leaders, let the world know how their donations and support are positively impacting the people we serve. You know, there's been a lot said about the benefits and issues created by social media. But I think one of the benefits that has come from that, the advent of social media over the past, you know, 25 years or so, is when people gave toward nonprofit causes in the past, it was done more with a sense of obligation. Like, this is the right thing to do. I need to do this. But like you were saying, they were, they were probably largely unaware of how their funds were being spent. And you just had to kind of trust the organization with it. So I think a positive thing that has come through social media is and and the internet even just that the advent of access to the internet in the you know uh, 90s was just an awareness and an and an ability for the donor to do research into a, a nonprofit organization how their money is being spent there's an accountability there now and i think it has caused a shift in giving toward you know organizations that are doing what they say they're going to do with the donor's money and toward impact and um, sustainability and, and things of that nature. And I think that's been a really, really healthy thing. And another thing that I've noticed too, is that there's a, there's a spectrum in nonprofit causes, right? So, so on the one end of the spectrum, you have urgent causes. Mm-hmm. These are things like disaster relief or refugees or things of that nature. Like those you don't have a lot of return on investment when, you, when you're giving toward causes like that, right? Mm-hmm. But they're hugely important that, that uh, they are needs that need to be met. And there are organizations that are doing amazing work in that realm. On the other end of the spectrum, you have impact, like what we've been talking about, and, and hope is heavy on impact. And then there's also the, the importance piece where, you know, there might be uh, organizations that are doing research on important things. And there's not necessarily an urgency yet, or and there's not necessarily a return on impact, but those things are coming, right, as the research is done right. and accomplishing what it's being set out to do. And so all of these things are necessary and important and are worthy of investment. And we're, we're here to celebrate all of it. We're all in this together. Right? None, no, one, no one of our organizations can solve the world's problems on our own. We need each other. Through the nonprofit work that you're doing and through the nonprofit work that we're all doing, our goal is to help people. We want to make a difference. But sometimes, and you kind of share this a little bit with the story about uh, the sunflower processing, sometimes it's either not what the people want or need, or there's other times where we provide um, some type of service, but it has a a negative impact on the people we're trying to help. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious to know like, your thoughts on that and a way we can kind of um, navigate around it. Yeah, I mentioned earlier that there's there's kind of a spectrum to what nonprofit organizations do, and that's you know relief, recovery, and development, right? And I think when we're talking about po- poverty alleviation in particular, people often just jump right to relief, and that's necessary and good. Like in those situations I was mentioning before with disaster relief and refugee situations, th- things like that. But I think it 
if we want to truly see people escape the bonds of generational poverty, we can't just get stuck in relief, perpetually giving handouts. We, we need to move past that. And there's an author named Robert Lupton who wrote a book called Toxic Charity. And the way that he defined toxic charity is when you give somebody a gift, there's an appreciation. Uh, th you know, thank you for this gift. When you give them the second gift, there's an anticipation. When's the, when's the next gift going to come? Mm -hmm. When you give them the third gift, there's an expectation. Mm -hmm. You know, I expect that around this time, this gift is going to come. Fourth gift, there's an entitlement to it. You know, where's my gift? Mm -hmm. And then by the time you get to the fifth gift, you've created full-blown dependency. And so what we try and do at Hope is turn that whole process on its head and, you know, remove the downward spiral toward dependency by investing in people's businesses. And everybody's heard the old adage, give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day, teach a man a fish, he'll live for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. At Homes for Hope and Hope International, we don't have to teach even teach people how to fish because they already know how, right? They, they already yeah. know what businesses <laughs> the communities want and need. We just have the opportunity to invest in their fishing businesses, so to speak. And so that's what we're trying to do here. If you wouldn't mind, I'm just kind of curious, can you talk a little bit more about the microfinancing and the solidarity groups? Yeah. The three programs that we have are savings groups, which are people who are living in really rural areas, don't have access to any formal financing services. And those usually formed through local churches. And the groups will come together. They'll uh, create their own rules under the guidance of one of our coaches. And they'll decide together, maybe we'll save 50 cents a week or, you know, a dollar a week. And then as that pot grows, they'll take turns drawing on it and paying it back and um, they'll decide on what the interest should be and in all of that it, it grows over time on the microfinance side so that starts with savings and leads to loans on the microfinance side these are real brick and mortar finance institutions with loan officers and people will apply for loans and they'll receive them uh, again they'll join solidarity groups cross guarantee each other's loans and if they're able to demonstrate an ability to save 20 percent of the loan that they're paying back, then they are qualified to apply for another loan. And so that starts with loans, leads to savings. And then similarly, on the small to medium enterprise side, these are for businesses that are ready to scale, but aren't quite ready to qualify for traditional banking in the countries that they're, that they're in. So those loans tend to be a little bit higher. Our, our average loan size is around $300. <laughs> okay, wow. And then the small to medium enterprise loans tend to be in the uh, small thousands. But same thing there. If they join the solidarity groups, cross-guarantee each other's loans, pay them back. And what happens in these groups is they go through what we call the five W's, which is welcome, worship, word, work, and wrap-up. So they, they come together, welcome each other. They worship the Lord together. They study God's word together and learn biblically-based business practices they do the work of paying back their loans and, re and receiving loans, and then they wrap it up, wrap the meeting up together. And it's incredible. If you come with us on one of our trips, um, they're vision trips. They're, they're not mission, mission trips. You're not going to build anything or paint anything, but you go and you meet the people that we serve and see their businesses and uh, meet the loan officers. I'll tell more about that in a second. But when you go on these trips, what, what will happen in these groups is usually it's people that are vouching for each other. They'll say like, I know this person has a good business idea. Um, they just need some capital, so they get invited into the group. And if people don't show up to the meetings, they will either wait 
or people from the group will go and knock on their door and bring them to the meeting. <laughs> and so there, that accountability is, I think, part of what leads to our high, high loan repayment rate. But one of the things that was most incredible to me uh, this past year, I had the opportunity to go to the Dominican Republic. And usually when organizations like ours take people to the field, our donors to the field, we want to put our best foot forward and, you know, show you our best. And there's, there's good reasons for that. Uh, but what was most impactful for me was the unplanned encounter. So we would be walking through these villages and people who we weren't there to see would see their loan officer walking through the street and would run out and hug them and, and greet them and invite us to come see their business and tell us about it. And I don't know about you. I, that's not the kind of relationship I have with my loan officer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think most people do. No, but it's because one of the things that we look for when we're, when we're hiring people in these countries is uh, we say the head of a banker, the heart of a pastor, the soul of a missionary. And you can really see that on display in these relationships that they've built. And so, you know, one person that we were in this little village to meet uh, one of the people that we serve, but they were delayed and they, they hadn't shown up yet. And this guy pulls up on his moped and sees his loan officer, hugs her and says, hey, come with me. So this wasn't a planned meeting. It just brings us down to his house um, down the street. And uh, he shows us this eight foot deep cistern that he had hand dug so that his home could get running water. It's fed by a local lake. And so he received technical assistance in how to build this cistern through um, Habitat for Humanity. So he learned how to do it through them, right? So there's partnership there. But he funded this project through the profits from his business, which he got started through his partnership with um, Esperanza or, or Hope in the Dominican Republic. And so, yeah, it was just incredible. It's, you know, hard work combined with partnership, combined with investment and training all on display all in the context of relationship. I really am taken by how small these loans are mm -hmm. and the impact they're making. It just goes to show how great the need is that a loan of several hundred dollars can change lives. Absolutely. So the person who won the Homes for Hope Award this year, uh, so we have, we have clients that we um, choose to honor each year. And um, their names are Ezekiel and Julienne, and they live in Rwanda. And... They started off living in a mud hut with no plumbing or electricity. They had five bi biological children and one orphan who they take care of, um, an 80-year-old mother and a nephew. Um, so all these people that they're taking care of. And uh, they had a very small business selling corn flour, but it was not enough to provide for their family and they needed more working capital. And so a friend told them about Urwego, which is our partner in Rwanda, and they joined one of these groups in 2009. And so they started with a $90 loan to grow their business selling corn flour. And then a couple years later, uh, so Ezekiel started in the group. A couple years later, Julianne joined and took her own separate loan because they had a rule that 70% of the members needed to be women. And about 80% of the people that we serve around the world are women entrepreneurs. That's great. So over the years, Ezekiel and Julianne were able to save and diversify their businesses. And they grew their flour business to a grocery store. And then they invested in land and um, started building commercial buildings for other people to rent out. They have a wholesale retail shop, a hardware shop, a banana shop, 13 commercial rental properties, a piggery, and then they buy large-scale food for stocking and selling. And they also have built their own home that has water and electricity. And their next loan, so you know, uh, so 2009 until today, the next loan is in is in the thousands. <laughs> so from $90 <laughs> to a thousands. 
and that's to purchase trucks so that they can transport their, their materials. And some of their quotes here are incredible. They said, my life has never been the same again. My life has changed positively thanks to God. I have the capacity to build houses uh, without affecting my businesses. They've employed 10 people as well. Uh, their children are going to school. One of the things that they said, hold on, see if I can find it here. After building this house, so they, again, they went from a mud hut to having a home with water and electricity. They started it when it was a bushy area, but now it's a town area because of our innovation. So again, it's just incredible. What an opportunity to work and meet these incredible people around the world and to serve them. You mentioned something in there about how they gave the credit to God. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned earlier about worship. Could you share with our listeners a little bit about how your faith and the faith of your organization plays into the good work you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. I think I learned, so when we start out in nonprofit work, I think we have grand visions of ourselves and what we're going to accomplish <laughs> when, we're, when we're young and ambitious. And I think some of that is healthy, but I think oftentimes we're trying to put ourselves in the hero spot where we're the ones who are solving problems. It makes us feel good, you know? <laughs> And I learned, you know, kind of midway through my career that that wasn't good for my soul. I was, I was caring too much about the impact I personally was having and I was noticing what that was doing to me. So I purposefully got into the humanitarian and development side of work to get myself out of the hero spot. I recognized a desire to, like I said before, just be a catalyst, connect resources to need. But, you know, the people that we're serving, they're the heroes in the story, the people that are on the front lines from these communities. You know, we had people that had been clients of Hope, where they were receiving loans and building businesses, who have now grown to become loan officers themselves. And they're the ones that are going out and making determinations on loans and serving other people. Those are the heroes, you know? It's not, a, it's not about us. And so I think... You asked, you know, what role does our, our faith in God play in our work? And I think we're just following Jesus's example, right? Who, who emptied himself of his glory, um, left heaven, came to earth and lived in poverty himself, um, was, was an outcast and died a criminal's death in, in my place, even though he was sinless, but then defeated death and sin and rose again. And so I think that's the motivation, right? Let, let's, let's follow his example. Let's humble ourselves and serve others. I think that's what we're here to do. Oh, I love it. You talked a little bit about how you were attracted to this work, but was there a moment in time or was there a period in your life where you said, I need to do this work specifically? So I'd like to hear a little bit more about how you got involved, what inspired you? Well, I started out in campus ministry and I was, I was doing that for a while, but I found what I, where I really thrived was making strategic connections. So I loved the opportunity to resource the people that are on the front lines doing the work through through my skills of making connections and connecting connecting resources to need. So that's kind of where I thrive. And I talked a little bit before about the the hero spot. I developed a heart, my wife and I, for initially unreached people groups around the world. But I'm a white guy from Jersey. I had four small children at the time. I only speak English. I'm probably not the most strategic person to travel across the world and <laughs> try and uh, reach people in these communities. And so how could I use what God had put in my hands most effectively for his glory? And so positions like this, where I am 
connecting people. That's that's kind of where really where I thrived. And so that's how I got into this line of work, um, moving out of campus ministry into the humanitarian development space. Uh, another thing that I found in the humanitarian development space, which is really refreshing, is that everybody is for each other. We all recognize that jo- that the job is too big for any of us. We we need each other, right? Even even the government, UNHCR, USAID. They recognize that they need the Christian organizations to go to the really gnarly places, <laughs> and and they celebrate that, you know. So I found that really refreshing about this line of nonprofit work. So while I was in this space, I, I read a book. I went to a conference and picked up a book called Mission Drift uh, by the CEO of Hope, uh, Peter Greer and Chris Horst, who um, was the director of advancement at the time, and I strongly recommend everybody read that book. That book was. Uh, I think is tantamount to read if you're involved in nonprofit work. So it's called Mission Drift. I read that book and that's how I became aware of hope. And then shortly thereafter, they came up with another book called Rooting for Rivals. And I thought an organization that would write books like this, Mission Drift and Rooting for Rivals, is an organization that I would want to be a part of. So yeah, I started to explore an opportunity there and saw this position come around and saw that it fit kind of my giftings and skills. And so I applied. And by God's grace, I got the position back in 2019. So I've been in this role since then. And you are the executive director. Yes, that's correct. And what does the day in the life of an executive director at Homes for Hope look like? Yeah, you know, strategizing, forming relationships, building relationships. We're scaling the organization, trying to increase our ability to support the work of Hope International. So all of all that that entails, <laughs> it's very full. Anything and everything, right? That's right. It's a little bit of a Swiss Army knife type role. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, we often talk about what, and, and we kind of did a little bit um, discuss about the reward, but w- what does this work do for you as a husband and a father and a man of Christ? Yeah, I think it's crucial to have transcendent meaning and purpose in what I do. And to show that to my kids and and my wife, you know, like to to be involved in a job that, again, isn't about me or about making money or <laughs> about advancing my brand. You know, all these things that the world tells us are what we should be focusing on. It's a role that is focused on God's glory, not my own, and serving others. That's what gets me out of bed every day. And hopefully my children are watching watching that and seeing how it affects our lives, seeing what we prioritize. And hopefully that's, yeah, the Lord will use that in their life to guide and direct them into what he has for them. You know, you've been doing this now for, I would just say about 20 years. Mm -hmm. So you've been in the service, uh, nonprofit, um, charity work, however you want to describe it. You've been doing this for a long time. What have you learned that maybe you weren't expecting to learn from this work and what has been revealed to you? I think, A, it's not about me. Again, getting myself out of the hero spot, I think that was really a crucial lesson for me to learn. I also learned the importance of trying things and failing and learning from that. Mm, That's great. I think that's been good. And then just time and time again, my wife and I have seen the Lord's faithfulness to provide. So in our our prior roles, we were uh, support-raising missionaries. So, you know, we were raising our own financial support. What I'm in right now is a salaried role. And just time and time again, we saw the Lord come through. And just to look back on his faithfulness, one of the things I appreciate most about reading the Old Testament is how many times uh, the people of Israel 
are call, you know call upon each other to look back on the Lord's faithfulness to them as a people over the over the course of their history. You know, not to that degree, of course, but I've seen that on display in our own life. So I think that gives us confidence as we look to the future moving forward that the Lord has always provided for and taken care of us and will in the future. Even if it might not look like the way we would expect it to or want it to, we can trust him because he's sovereign and good and he knows what's best for us better than we do. Oh, that's it's beautiful. And you know, it's it, you hit really hit on something that resonated with me. It's not always what we expect or, or what we thought it was going to look like. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes it takes us as, um, you know, <laughs> as mere humans, uh, some time to look back and be like, oh, that's exactly what I needed to learn at that period <laughs> of my life. Or that's exactly where I needed to be at that period of my life. So the Lord does have a plan. We, we often don't understand it, but that's okay. I don't think it's our job to understand it. Absolutely. Through your work, you've shared some really great stories about lives changed. Is there anything in particular, maybe it's a success story, or maybe it's just something you guys have accomplished that you are most proud of? I don't know. It all makes me proud. I think it's just, um, there's tons of stories I could tell. The, the work in general is just, it's, it's rewarding, and I'm grateful to be a part of it. You know, it's, it's funny because oftentimes, you know, we can say, and in the nonprofit world, it was a large gift we closed, or sure. it was a campaign that we accomplished, or, you know, you can cite certain things, but it sounds like you genuinely love the work you're doing, and each day is uh, just rewarding for you. Yeah, you know, we have objectives and key results and key performance indicators and those things, but ultimately how we measure our work is, were we faithful to do what the Lord has called us to do? And if so, we can trust him with the results, you know, like this, this strive to be faithful and trust God with the results. And I think that's what we get to live every day. What are the hopes? Like, what are the hopes in the near, I guess, the short term and long term for Homes for Hope? Like I said earlier, we want to scale the organization and increase our ability to support the work of Hope International and, um, you know, what they're accomplishing through Christ-centered microfinance around the world. So. We have plans to scale the organization over the next couple of years. We have a you know a strategic plan in place. We want to see a Homes for Hope project in every state. We, we haven't accomplished that yet. We want to, uh, this year we're hoping to get 15 starts, uh, Homes for Hope project starts, and we'd eventually like to grow that to 20 within the next five years. Um, we're adding staff every year. We want to become more top of mind in the building industry. People, when, they, when people think about building industry charities, there's uh, three or four that come immediately to mind, and we're not one of those yet. And so uh, we want to root, like I said before, we want to root for our friends in the building industry who are doing great work. And we also just want to be called to mind as readily as they are. We, we want to be the building industry's response to global poverty, you know? Mm-hmm. So when they think about that, like, how can I be involved in addressing global poverty? We would love for Homes for Hope to come more readily to mind. And there's lots of things that we're doing toward that end. Again, we want to honor our donors and our partners by um, being efficient in our processes and um, getting the most impact on their donations. We want to be faithful reporters on what they're contributing to. Yeah, there's lots of things. I, you know, I could run through my strategic plan with you if you'd like, but <laughs> I think those are, those are some things. We, you know, we do measure things and, and we do care, but ultimately, like I said before, we want to be faithful to do what the Lord has called us to and trust Him with the results. 
Well, thank you on behalf of all your donors for having a strategic plan. <laughs> <laughs> so that lets that lets the world know that there is real thought and um, care put into this, not only in the near term, but in the future of where the organization is going. And I do love that you want to grow within the U.S. We didn't really talk about that. So I know you're in 20 plus countries internationally. Where are you here in the U.S.? You don't have to list every state, but just kind of give us a general idea of where you are and where you would like to grow. We are in most states. There's there's a couple out west that we're not in yet. Uh, I'd say we're I think we're in about 26 or 27 of the states, and so we'd like to get to all 50. We'd love, yeah, like I said, we'd love to have partners in every state. We'd love to have projects starting every month. What we can measure really is project starts. We can't necessarily measure uh, project closes. And when I say project, that's when a builder says we're going to do, we're going to build a home and donate the proceeds. And then we launch that project by casting vision to their trade partners and suppliers. We can, we can kind of shoot for a goal on that front because we can measure, we have a, some semblance of, of con, not necessarily control, but um, it's, it's a little bit easier to track when starts happen, mm-hmm. but build cycles and what the market does and all those things uh, affect when projects close. And so we can't really control those factors. So that's why we're measuring starts. Um, so yeah, I think we want to continue to grow again, ultimately with the goal of providing more and more funding to hope. So I'll, I'll give you this too. So when, when I first came on in 2019, we were averaging around a million dollars in, in grants to Hope International per year. And so in 2020, as part of our uh, of Hope International's five-year strategic plan, which ends in 2025, I committed to contributing 15 million uh, in grants to Hope starting in 2020, all the way through 2025. So the way that looked like was a million dollars in 21, two in 22, three in 23, four in 24, and then five in 25. Wow. And by God's grace so far, we've been, we've been faithful to meet those goals. In 21, we were able to grant 1.45 to hope. In 22, we were able to grant 2.2 to hope. And we'll see what happens this year and, <laughs> and the following two years. So that's, that's kind of our, sh- our short-term goals of what we're striving toward. And we'll take as many referrals as donation dollars. Mm-hmm. So if anybody in your network here knows builders that might resonate with this work, we would love to be connected with them and uh, see if we can help meet these goals, not for our sake, but for God's glory and for the people that we serve. Well, that was just going to be my next question. How can we help you achieve these goals? <laughs> because obviously, I'm personally very excited about what I'm hearing today and learning more about this. It's just the model. It works the numbers and the impact that you're reporting are, I mean, staggering. It's really, it's truly making a difference. And I'm excited to see how we can, as a community, the Difference Makers global community, can help you grow this. And um, how can our listeners support you? How can they uh, rally behind this cause? Yeah, introduce us to builders. Uh, people love to give through their their corporate foundations at their, at their companies or their donor-advised funds. Uh, so we, we love to talk to people about that as well. Uh, we love to be creative. That's one of our uh, val- our organizational values is creativity. So if you want to partner with us, but you haven't heard uh, here something that might fit with your company, talk to us anyway. We'll figure something out with you. We love to do that. I think really the first step is to just connect with us. So you could 
uh, visit our website at homesforhope.org or connect with me on LinkedIn or uh, my email address, phone number. We can include those in the show notes. Yeah, we'd love to connect with you and see what the Lord might have for us. Before we part here today, do you have any words of inspiration that you'd like to leave us here with today? I, I think what I'd love to say is be willing to take yourself out of the hero spot. I think that's the best thing I can leave us with as we are all seeking to make a difference. Um, it's easy to think too highly of ourselves. So yeah, get yourself out of the hero spot and see what God does with that. Well, this is Difference Makers, and you, Matt, are a real-world difference maker. Thank you for sharing your incredible story with our community, and thank you for making a difference through your innovative and inspiring charity work. Thanks, Albert. On behalf of Difference Makers Global Community, I want to thank you for listening. And if you'd like to learn more about today's guest, visit differencemakers.org. There you'll find a dedicated page for each of our Difference Makers and a link to their charity's website where you can learn more about their inspiring work and support the mission. And for our readers out there, I have two books that I wrote that I'd love for you to check out. Crossing America for a Cure and Running the Coast for a Cure. These books chronicle charity adventures I did in honor of my niece, Jenna, who was born with a rare neurological disorder called Sturge-Weber syndrome. Both books can be purchased on Amazon.com and all profits from book sales are donated to Sturge Weber Research. Thanks again for listening. And remember, in each of us is the power to make a difference.